Good morning. morning. Let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your kingdom, for the kingdom of truth, the kingdom of love, freedom. We uh, ask that your spirit uh, will enlighten our minds, uh, transform our hearts, draw us closer to you and closer to each other. Make us effective uh, lights for your kingdom at this time in earth history that you might come soon. Lead us in our discussion now. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, we are doing Lesson 3 in the Quarterly Genesis, and the title is Cain and His Legacy. And the memory verse is from Genesis 4, 6, and 7, which reads, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And it des- its desire for you, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. What's being described here? Is this a behavior issue that's being described? A legal, a legal situation? Or is it a state of being? Something happening? Is God focusing on rituals? Or does God focus the attention somewhere else? He says, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? This is what God says to Cain. It starts the conversation. Where's God focusing the issue? State of being. What is it that God wants from Cain? His heart, confession. What does he want from his heart? Love and trust. Love and trust. He wants Cain to love and trust him. Yes, that's what he wants. Okay? So he focuses on something's going on. You're angry. You're countenance. You're not happy. What does sin do to the sinner? Does it do anything to the sinner? Or does it just put him in legal jeopardy? It, it causes fear, causes guilt, causes shame, causes selfishness. Sin actually damages the, the moral faculties that God has given us. The more we sin, the less sensitive we become to truth and love. Yes or no? Yes. This is damaging. Can a person have genuine peace while embracing and practicing sin? No. It actually does something to the sinner. Last paragraph reads, The next events... The crime of Cain, the crime of Lamech, the decreasing lifespan and the increasing wickedness are all fulfillments of the curse uttered in Genesis 3. Do you remember last week's lesson? You can turn to Wednesday's lesson last week. And in Wednesday's lesson last week, it says, judgment, and it's referring to God's judgment, leads to death, evil, and curses. That's what it said in last week's lesson. In this week's lesson, it says, the crime of Cain are fulfillment of the curses. So judgments are the cause for the curses, and the crime is the result of the curse. What is the lesson actually trying to suggest? And these are the subtle... It's trying to suggest, ultimately, God is responsible for the crime. And these are the subtle distortions that enter into our minds and are being implanted when we accept the lie that God's law functions like human law. The lesson makes the problem of sin behavioral, criminal. 
But that's not what the Bible teaches. John, first John three, eleven through fifteen. First John three, eleven through fifteen is from the NIV. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Who is a murderer? Only the one who actually kills another or also the one who hates another in their heart? Is the Bible primarily concerned with the action or what's going on in the heart that leads to the action? Jesus said, make a tree good and your fruit will be good, and make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, the good man brings forth good of the good stored up in him, the evil man brings forth evil of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For, here, listen, by your words you will be acquitted, and your words you will be condemned. Why? What is this describing? Yes, this is diagnosis. Diagnosis of reality. The, the abundance of the heart leads. So mathematicians bring forth math, and musicians bring forth music, and artists bring forth art. And corrupt, selfish people bring forth corrupt selfishness. And thus, in the day of judgment, you will be diagnosed for the quality and condition of your heart and what you bring forth from that heart. This is not a judicial thing. It's a diagnostic thing. Monday, third, let's jump to Monday. Third paragraph in Monday's lesson, which is a quotation out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 71, and it reads, Without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sin. And they were to show their faith in the blood of Christ as promised as the promised atonement by offering the firstlings of the flock in sacrifice. Besides this, the first fruits of the earth were to be presented to the Lord as a thank offering. When you read this, what law lens are you reading it through? Design law or imposed law? Does it make a difference? Why could there be no remission of sin without the shedding of blood? give you some classic answers and see which ones resonate. And you see, design law impose law, where these, where these answers are coming from. Well, the father needed a sacrifice offered to him to do something to the father, propitiate his wrath, appease him, persuade him, soften him up, make a legal provision, a loophole somewhere, payment, in order to give God permission to be able to do something that God was not allowed or willing to do without the blood payment. That's a classic answer. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Or the law, which is above God and compulsory upon God, required death to be paid. Another answer that's commonly given. How about, because the law requires a just penalty be paid, and the law requires that someone die for the crime of sin, and in God's justice system, it is considered very righteous for an innocent person to be executed in the place of the guilty so that the guilty person can go free. That's a very righteous thing to do. 
That's another classic answer. They don't say the last part to expose the fallacy of it. They'll just say, in God's system, the, the innocent had to be executed to the righteous. I mean, the, the guilty could be, could be pardoned. Yes? The logic they use with COVID-19. Yeah. Or is it that sin changed the actual condition of human beings? Infecting them with a death-causing principle... And the only way to restore human beings to eternal life was to eradicate the death-causing principle and restore the life-causing principle within the species. And this required someone, someone had to overcome the, and destroy the death-causing principle and restore into human beings the life-causing principle. And the only way to do that was the shedding of blood. In other words, Christ's death was the means by which the death-causing principle was eliminated. And if you want biblical text for this, uh, is it 1 Timothy? It says uh, that he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. He destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. By his death, Hebrews, he destroyed him holds the power of death. That is the devil. But the quote said, faith in his blood. What does it mean to have faith in his blood? Does that mean faith in red corpuscles? Or or is blood symbolic of something? Blood is symbolic of his life. Yeah, the life is in the blood. So faith in his life. What does that mean? The sinless life, the perfect life, the holy life, the righteous life. A revelation of, if you've seen me, you've... So faith in his life, would that mean also faith in the Father? And what does the word faith mean? Trust. Trust. And this faith, this this evidence, this righteousness that Christ revealed, and it says in Romans chapter 3, one of the reasons... And I think there are multiple reasons. We don't want to uh, limit ourselves to one. One of the reasons Christ died, it says in Romans 3, was to reveal God's righteousness. Showed him publicly dying. To reveal the because he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he was accused of being unjust or unrighteous. And one of the reasons was to show his righteousness. So what does it mean to have faith? Does it mean to have faith in a blood payment? I have faith that the righteous blood and the sinless blood of Jesus was paid to my account in heaven. And therefore, when the Father looks into my accounts, all my sins, no matter how big the pile, the righteous blood of Jesus erases them. And I have faith in that. That's a common thing taught, isn't it? Is that what it means to have faith in the blood? Or does it mean we see the life of Jesus and the lies about God that we've been told are expunged from us? Our fear of God is removed. We're one to trust. We open the heart in trust. And the love of God is poured in the heart. We get a new motive, a new principle. The Spirit dwells there. And as Paul says in Galatians 2, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Uh, would that, this idea of Christ living in you, would that be anything connected to the John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, life is in the blood, partaking of Christ, having a new life, a reborn life. We have faith in in the blood. These flesh and blood are symbols. We've gone over this many times. Jesus was the word. 
made flesh. Unless you eat my flesh, ingest my word, truth, you won't have the lies dispelled. But when you ingest my word, the lies are dispelled, you're one to trust. When you open your heart to trust, then you receive the blood, the new life that I have procured for you. And it's no longer I that live. I mean, you that live, but, but, but I live in Christ speaking there. So this is what uh, Ellen White describes the blood being. First is out of Fundamentals of Christian Education, 378. In the study of the Bible, the converted soul eats the flesh and drinks the blood of the Son of God, which he himself interprets as receiving and doing his words that are spirit and life. Blood represent the words of truth, as I mentioned. And this is out of Christ's Object Lessons 102. The leaven of truth works a change in the whole man, making the coarse refined, the rough gentle, the selfish generous. By the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. This is what the blood symbolizes. The truth, righteousness, life of Jesus. Have faith in the blood? We have faith in the reality of who Christ is and the truth that he's provided. What does it mean by the promised atonement in the quote? The promised atonement. How do we understand the word atonement? What law lens do you read that through? In the imposed law lens, atonement is appeasement, payment of some kind. But under the design law, it actually means what it originally meant when King James English was being used and the King James Bible was translating this word into English, and that's where it came from. Back then, there was a verb that was spelled O-N-E. We have a noun, first number, one. But that was a verb also. And the verb, action word, one, was used if two people were were at odds, I'm going to go one them. And it very shortly became at one. I'm going to go at one them. I'm going to put them at one. But it's pronounced in the Old English. And so when you're all by yourself, you're not all one, you're alone. And to bring two people together that are odds, it's not at one, it's a tone. And so a tone, an atonement, actually means bringing uh, parties that are, are, are alienated back into oneness or unity. This is John 17, when Jesus is praying, I pray that you will be one. You and me, me and you, all of us one. This is at one myth. This is what it actually means. And God is working through Christ to bring the human species into oneness with him again. And the question is, what keeps us alienated? What is the barrier? What what separates us from God? Is there something in God that keeps us from him? Is there something in God's law that is a problem that has to be adjusted, fixed, changed in some way that's a barrier to, to us? Or is there actually something in, in humankind after Adam sinned that is the barrier? And so in order to restore humans to oneness, Christ had to do something. But he didn't need to do something to God. God is perfect in all his ways, no changing. Uh, didn't he need to do something to God's law? It's eternal and never changing. It's righteous and life is built upon it. But something had to be done to the species human to restore us to oneness with God. This was the mission of Christ. And thus, and what, what, and, and if you, and the Bible word for the problem is sin. That's the Bible word for the problem. 
And thus, first, uh, excuse me, John one twenty nine. John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the punishment of the world. No, that's not what he said. That's what's taught in most of Christianity. What he said is, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin is the problem. But most of Christianity teaches Christ came to take the punishment for sin. And that's the penal legal model of a human law system perverting the gospel message. Jesus doesn't take away the punishment. He takes away the actual sin problem and restores righteousness. And that's why it says, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be declared legally pardoned and not have to be punished. No, so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. That is the whole, that's the point. An online viewer sent the following uh, quotation in uh, for a question for today, for our question answer time. And I saw it this morning and thought, oh, this really fits perfectly to our lesson, so I'll drop it in here and we'll unpack it. And here's the quotation. It's out of Signs of the Times, December 23, 1886, written by Ellen White. The altar and the promise stand side by side. And one casts clear beams upon the other, showing that the justice of an offended God could be appeased only by the death of his beloved son. Didn't we just decide that atonement is not appeasement and that nothing had to be done to God? Doesn't this quotation sound sound or suggest like maybe the the death was to be to, to appease an offended God? It certainly sounds that way, doesn't it? So how would you answer? And they asked the question, uh, how do you understand this in the design law lens? Well, one of the first things to do when you get a quote like this, and I recommend it highly, is to go back and read the whole article. Read it in the context the author wrote it. And if you go back to the whole article, this is why I dropped it in here, the article is actually about Cain and Abel. That's what the article's about. And here's the first paragraph in the article. These two brothers, Cain and Abel, represent the whole human family. They were both tested on the point of obedience, and all will be tested as they were. Abel bore the proving of God. He revealed the gold of a righteous character, the principles of true godliness. But Cain's religion had not a good foundation. It rested on human merit. He brought to God something in which he had personal interest, the fruits of the ground, which he, which had been cultivated by his toil, and he presented his offering as a favor done to God, through which he expected to secure the divine approval. He obeyed in building an altar, obeyed in bringing a sacrifice, but it was only a partial obedience. The essential part, the recognition of the, re, uh, the need of a redeemer, was left out. What did Abel bring that Cain did not bring? Symbol of Jesus and his ability to destroy sin. Yes, he did. He did bring that different symbol. That's true. But is that the core difference here? Was it simply the if if Cain would have come with the same character and the same attitude, but brought a lamb instead, would have all been well. 
No. Why not? The attitude is what counts. Uh, the the Pharisees uh, that crucified Christ uh, were they were they worshiping on the wrong day? But they, they did they have the wrong sacrifices at temple? Okay. Was why? So what made Abel's offering acceptable? Simply because it followed the rules? Weren't the Jews who crucified Christ following the right rules and the sacrifices they brought? When the jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? What was the answer? No, it was not repent and be baptized. Yes, uh, that's the most common translation is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word believe, P-I-S-T-A-S, pistis. One word, we translate that into three English words. Believe, faith, and trust. Believe, belief, faith, and trust. One, one Greek word, three English words. What it actually means when he says, what, do I, what must I do to be saved? It literally means, right there in the context, put your trust in Jesus. Or place your faith in Jesus. That's what it means. If you trust Jesus, you will be saved. But wait, don't I have to read my Bible? Don't I have to be baptized in water? Don't I have to repent? Don't I have to have the imputed righteousness and then the imparted, or the imparted right, imputed righteousness and the imparted righteousness? Don't I have to be justified and sanctified? And don't my sins have to be expiated? Don't I have a whole long list of things that I've got to go through here? That's not what Paul told him. Paul said, place your trust in Jesus and you'll be saved. Yes? Trust is a journey. So as you get to know someone, you trust them more and more. And as you're trusting them, you're starting to emulate what they're doing. Just like when you have a good friend, you start to look like your friend. You start to act like your friend. So choosing your friends wisely, same as this. No, I like, I like where you're going with that. Uh, let's put it in this context. If you knew somebody who was dying of some condition, and you also knew a doctor that had a cure and a remedy, and, and this person said to you, I'm dying. What must I do to be saved? Would you say, here, let me introduce you to this doctor and trust him. Just put your trust in his hands and you will be saved from this condition. Now, of course, humans don't have all cures for all conditions, but the metaphor works because we're not talking about a human. We're talking about God. Can God completely heal all who trust him? And what does saving mean? Well, which model? In the legal model, it means adjustment of legal standing. In the design law model, it means actually what the Greek means, sozo, it means to heal. You end up in the ER with a rattlesnake bite, and you say, doctor, please save me. You're pardoned and forgiven. This is not what you want. What you want is you want healing, and that's so. What must I do to be healed? What must I do to be saved from sin, not saved in sin? All you have to do is place your trust in Jesus. Trust him. Have faith. Not have faith in a payment he'll make to the Father and then work in the heavenly records to erase things. Have faith in him, and he'll heal you. That's what it means. So the difference between Cain and Abel Abel placed his trust in God. And as your physician, you place your trust in him. And he gives you a prescription. 
If he gives you some physical therapy exercises to do and you trust him, what do you do? You do them. (laughs) Okay? So Abel trusted God and followed the prescription. Cain decided he had a better treatment plan and implemented his own. And his plan had no healing benefits because he wasn't trusting God. He couldn't fix the problem himself. This is really what's happening here. In the same article where this quotation came from, we read, In the case of Cain and Abel, we have a type of two classes that will exist in the world till the close of time. And this type is worthy of close study. There is a marked difference in the characters of the two brothers. They brought two different characters, one trusting, one distrusting. The characters of the two brothers. And the same difference is seen in the human family today. Cain represents those who carry out the principles and works of Satan by worshiping God in a way of their own choosing. Notice, this author doesn't say they carry out the principles of Satan by rejecting God and not worshiping. They worship God, but by bringing in their own views, this is imperial law stuff, this is human law stuff, projecting the whole system of human justice onto the heavenly system and teaching that God operates his universe like we do. That's a human system. That's the Cain method. Like the leader whom they follow, they are willing to render partial obedience, but not entire submission to God. Man, in his in the pride of his heart, would like to believe that he can confer some favor upon God, that our Heavenly Father may be the receiver and not always the giver. But God will, but God will not be bribed. He says, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Man has nothing to give God that he has not first received from God. Note the context is over character. One of love and trust versus pride and selfishness. Abel understood the principles of God's government, how he's always the giver, not the receiver. But Cain sought to put God in the role of receiving an offering and thereby earning favor. But what if instead we go to God and offer him the blood of a sinless son of his in order to earn his favor? We don't offer him fruits of our garden. We offer him the blood of his son. Would that make him happy? I'm so happy to see my son's blood to earn favor. From the same article, a little bit down, it says, how did Abel know so well the plan of salvation? How did he know so well? Many people ask, did the people in the Old Testament understand the plan of salvation? How did he know so well? Adam taught it to his children and grandchildren. And the apostle says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. After Adam had sinned, a feeling of terror seized him. A constant dread was upon him. Shame and remorse tortured his soul. Where did all this come from? Was God sending an angel down to to torment his soul? Or did it come from the condition of sin itself? Yeah, it's inherent. In this state of mind, he wished to be far removed as possible from the presence of God, whom he so loved to meet in Eden. But the Lord followed this conscience-stricken man 
and while he condemned the sin of which Adam had been guilty, gave him words of gracious promise. And pronouncing the curse upon the deceiver, God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and upon thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and you shall bruise its heel. This was the first gospel sermon ever preached to fallen man. This promise was the star of hope, illuminating the dark and dismal future of the race. Adam gladly received the welcome assurance of deliverance and diligently instructed his children in the way of the Lord. The promise was presented in close... Now, now remember that quote that I read earlier? Okay. Notice the context we're in? The promise was presented in close connection with the altar of sacrificial offering. The altar and the promise stand side by side. And one cast clear beams of light on the other, showing that the justice of an offended God could be appeased only by the death of his beloved son. So with the greater context of the article, how do you understand the section about justice, offended God, and appeasement by the death of his son? What law ends? What is God's justice? Under the design law, law of love, what is justice? What's... It's also called righteousness. In the Greek New Testament, the same word for both. Because when you do the just thing, you're always doing the right thing. What defines what's right and wrong in God's universe? The law. What law? The law of love, which emanates or has its origins where? In God's character. Yes. And so the, the justice of God is always doing the right thing. And, and, and what is the right thing to do? If you see someone you love dying of a condition. So if you had a child and you told them never, ever, ever mess with the pesticides in the garage. They're dangerous, they're toxic, they're poison. But for whatever reason, we'd have no explanation because there's no rational reason for it. One of your children ingests a half a bottle of the poison, the pesticide, and you hear a crash in the garage. You run out and they're foaming at the mouth and seizing. What would be the just action for you to take you disobeyed my rule pull out your belt and begin to beat them and punish them for their sin oh you say uh, i i uh, you're dying you're dying over here i know what i'll do i'll drink the poison in your stead uh, what is the actual just thing for you to do yes heal them Heal them. If you, to, uh, use an antitoxin. Uh, take them to the hospital. Do whatever you can to save them from the condition. And thus, the altar and the promise stand side by side, doing what's right. So the promise given to Adam that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, but the serpent would bruise his heel, stands beside the altar, which visually acted out the altar, visually acted out the self-sacrifice of Christ to achieve the promise. The gentle lamb, imagine, the gentle little lamb with its large, sad eyes looking up to you in trust, and you take a knife and cut its throat. Illustrates gentle Jesus, meek and mild, standing without protest or complaint as he is beaten, criticized, spit upon, thorns on his head, crucified, in order to eradicate the death-causing principle and restore humanity back to at oneness with God. The promise and the altar enlighten each other. Do you see it now? Just like was said in the quote. Well, what about being appeased then? What law lens do you look through? 
if you like to impose law, legal payment to an offended God. But the article itself disallows this interpretation because the article itself clearly stated that all the gifts come from God. And when Cain tried to bring an offering to earn favor from God, so God actually sent the gift to meet man's need because we could not send something to him to meet our need. So this disallows the idea that this is something done for God. It's done, it's done for man. God didn't need the sacrifice of Christ. Humankind needed it. God was perfectly righteous, holy, and, and uh, well, perfect. But we were not. It was for our need, not his. The barrier set up was that of sin and man, not a problem in God. But it is offensive. It, so he's an offended God. He's, it's, an, it's an offense to God as it is to every being who has a heart of love to see pain, suffering, and death happening to the people you love. It offends you. It offends your sensitivities. You hate it. And this occurs when God's design law for life is broken. Thus God hates sin because it breaks the protocols upon which life is constructed, inflicts pain, suffering, death. And this is offensive to a pure, loving God. Therefore, if we look through the lens of design law, the law upon which life is built, we see the sacrifice of Christ was the only means whereby God could eradicate the death-causing principle and restore the law of love, law of life back. Now, if you think I'm being dishonest with the word appeasement, because the word appeasement was used, if you look up in the dictionary, the word appease actually means to make someone pleased or less angry. What would please God after Adam sinned? What would please him? If your child was the, uh, in the garage floor, foaming at the mouth and dying, what would please you? <laughs> to have them healed. Yes, to have them healed. So it would please God to deliver and save humanity. This is what God desired. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his Son but gave him up, how will he not along with him give us all things? And what would make God less angry? Think it through. If your child had done that and they were dying, you would be so angry you're losing your child. What would make you less angry? Same thing. That pleases you. They're saved. I'm not going to lose them. I'm not as angry. It's the same thing. This is what the appease means. The only thing that would really appease him, to take away his turmoil, to make it the heartbreak that God was going through and losing his creation was Jesus remedying the problem and saving humanity. Uh, Tuesday's lesson, second paragraph, says God's two questions in Genesis 4-6 are related to Cain's two conditions. Note that God does not accuse Cain 
As with Adam, God asks questions, not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he wants Cain to look at himself and then understand the reason for his own condition. As always, the Lord seeks to redeem fallen people, even when they openly fail him. Then after asking these questions, God counsels Cain. What does it say about God that he approaches Cain in this way? Not with an accusation, but with a question. I mean, do you like do you like that God approaches them this way, approached Adam this way? And what is the condition that God wants Cain to acknowledge? Is it a legal condition? I broke the rules. I know I'm in legal trouble. What's the fine? How much do I have to pay? How do I get my accounts cleaned up? Is that what he was wanting? Or do you want him to actually acknowledge the fact he doesn't trust God? That he's selfish and fearful. That he has hatred and bitterness in his heart. And he wants him to come back to humble trust and love. Can people have proper behaviors and still be enemies of God? Can people who actually love and trust God still struggle with various sins yet desire to be better? people. So can we actually tell by the external behaviors who's loving and trusting God and who is his enemy? Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. God's primary concern is heart transformation, which will, as we mature, result in behavior transformation. No question about that. But in the journey, there can still be tripping up and stumbling and falling in the journey. Fourth paragraph, it says, On the other hand, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and if you and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God's counsel has revealed the root of sin, and it is found in Cain, Cain himself. Here again, God is counseling Cain, seeking to guide him in the way he should go. What does it mean, sin lies at the door? When you hear that, does another Bible text pop into your mind about a door? Yes, exactly. Revelation 3.20, Jesus speaking, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens the door will come in and sup with him and he with me. Are those two different doors? The the door that God is referring to, Cain, sin is standing at the door, and Jesus knocking at the door, are those the same doors or or, or is it a different door? It's the door of your heart. Yes, it's exactly the door of your heart. That's what's being referred to in both cases. Who decides what enters your heart? You're the one who decides what enters your heart. Satan cannot force force a person to sin. He, He can tempt, but we must choose. And we have that power through God's grace. We wouldn't have that power if right in Eden, God didn't say, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. The grace of God interceding in the hearts of human beings gives us and, re, and, and, and reclaims or, or uh, protects that, that liberty to make that choice. But we would have no choice if it wasn't for God's grace. But we do have God's grace, so we have the choice. Do we say yes to Jesus? Do we say yes to temptation? Do we love God? And it's not just yes to an actual act of sin. It's what you love. What your heart's affections are tied to. The Bible describes the, the conversion and salvation process as circumcision of the heart. Cutting out of our hearts things that we value and cherish and, and have affection for that are not 
in harmony with God's kingdoms and principles. Of course, we all recognize we should cut out our addictions, whatever those addictions are. That's the easy one to see. But what about love for our nations? Can some people be so patriotic and love their nation such that they get pulled away from God's kingdom? What about professional societies or alma maters or even our theologies? We, have a, we love our theologies more than we actually love God. Our viewpoints. I can tell you I have been praying over the last several years that God will continue to circumcise my heart, and it's been a painful process. Some of you may know that I served in the military for eight years. I was a military psychiatrist, U.S. Army, and I was very patriotic. And it's been quite a grieving and heart-wrenching process to see my nation do what it has done in the last several years. My heart has been grieving I was so proud to be an American, traveling the world, proud of the liberties and the freedoms that we have stood for. And I've had to grieve, and my heart has been cut away, and I can't tie my affections to this nation, which is going to speak like a dragon. Same with my professional society. I've been proud to be a physician. Very proud to be part of the health care, the people who who minister to others through the healthcare system. And over the last couple of years, I've grieved as I've seen the, the corporation of medicine where, where authoritarianism and rules and algorithms and protocols overrule independent decision-making and, and judgment and pressure being applied by state boards and, and, and credentialing agencies to conform to an authoritarian opinion rather than to follow one's conscience and good judgment. It's been very sad to watch. And I've had conversations in my own profession with people in my own professional organizations where I actually have served as, for, served as president of these organizations. And it's very sad to see their collusion with censoring, with unwillingness to actually have a, a discussion of a difference of opinion, on certain things. This, this is not medicine as I used to know it. It's very sad for me. I've been grieving, but I can't place my trust in the medical system. I can't have my heart tied to that. Last paragraph, it says, God's second word of counsel concerns the attitude to take toward this, this sin, which lies at the door and his desires for you. God recommends self-control. You should rule over it. The same principle resonates in James when he explains that each one of us is tempted when he's dragged away by his own uh, evil desires. The gospel offers us the promise not only of the forgiveness of sin, but the victory over it. In the end, Cain had no one to blame for his sin but himself. From where does self-control come? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Last fruit of the Spirit. The Greek, n Kratia, and within, krat, autocrat, democrat, means authority over. And when we, Holy Spirit has his way in our life, we get one of the fruits, which is enkratia, authority and ability to govern or direct oneself. In the old King James, it was described as temperance. But it actually means self-control. Understanding God's kingdom, God never takes your control. He restores it to you. Because what God wants, he wants love. And guess what? Puppets 
cannot love. Dolls cannot love. Robots and computers cannot love. Free sentient beings can love. And so God restores to us the freedom to be self-governed. This is what he wants. I'm going to jump to Wednesday's lesson. Man, time has just flown by. Uh, Last paragraph, it says, uh, it's because Abel's blood was poured into the ground that the ground is now cursed again. It says, uh, as a result, Cain is then condemned to be a refugee far from God. Only when Cain hears God's sentence does he acknowledge the significance of God's presence. For without it, he fears for his own life, and so on and so forth. What caused Cain to be a refugee? Was it because God condemned him? As God's condemnation caused him to be a refugee. His choice to sin. His choice to sin. I'm gonna, certainly part of it. Without the sin, he wouldn't have been a refugee. No question. But I'm going to suggest that wasn't really it. He couldn't handle the truth. Okay, I like where you're going with that. So after the sin, something else happened. His trust in God was no more. He didn't have trust in God. And if he didn't trust God after sin, what do we do if we sin and we still trust God? What do we do? We repent. We seek his grace. Isn't that what we do after we sin and we still trust God? So he sinned and he didn't trust God. So what didn't he do? He didn't repent. He didn't seek God for, for healing. Well, what's the only consequence? What's the only outcome for people who sin and won't repent, won't seek restoration with God? Yes, you end up a refugee, ultimately. He, he isolated himself. What, what happens in his heart? Fear, guilt, shame, self-loathing, self-disgust. He is not at peace because sin rules in his heart. And he, and he, and he will feel condemned or wrong. I've seen this in my practice. People who won't resolve what's going on in their heart, they wear masks in the community, they always fear being found out, they're afraid to let people get to know them because they're afraid they'll be rejected, afraid they won't be liked, they don't have peace around others, even if they're around others. Now, this is interesting. I told you I was going to bring this back up this week from last week. This is out of first spiritual, um, the, the first volume is Spirit of Prophecy, page 28. It's quite an amazing description. We read a little bit last week, read a little bit more this week. It's about uh, after Satan's fall. Satan stood in amazement at his new condition. His happiness was gone. He looked upon the angels who with him were once so happy, but who had been expelled from heaven with him. Before, before their fall, not a shade of discontent had marred their perfect bliss. Now all seemed changed. Countenances which had reflected the image of their maker were gloomy and despairing. Strife, discord, and bitter recriminations were among them. Previous to their rebellion, these things had been unknown in heaven. Satan now beholds the terrible results of his rebellion. He shuddered in fear to face the future and to contemplate the end of these things. What caused these changes described here? Is this an affliction by God? God is punishing them for their rebellion. Or is, is, is God using the, his power to make the angels feel bad, be discontented, to argue with each other? Or is this what sin does? 
Breaking God's design law damages all who break it, whether humans or angels. This is what happened to Adam and Eve. This is what happened to Cain. This is why Cain became a refugee and ran and hid. He was experiencing all the same type stuff inside himself. There's no peace, no joy, or happiness. Remember, happiness is a byproduct of healthiness. And healthiness it comes from living in harmony with God's laws for life. And when you're out of harmony, in all domains, physically, relationally, psychologically, spiritually, if you're out of harmony with God's laws for life, you will have some health problem. And the greater the problem, the more it undermines your happiness. The hour for joyful happy songs of praise to God and his dear son had come. Satan had led the heavenly choir. He had raised the first note and all the angelic hosts united with him and glorious strains of music had resounded throughout heaven in honor of God and his dear son. But now, instead of strains of sweetest music, discord and angry words fall upon the ear of the great rebel leader. Where was he? Was it not all a horrible dream? Was he shut out of heaven? Were the gates of heaven never more to open and admit him? The hour of worship draws near when bright and holy angels bow before the Father. No more will he unite in heavenly song. No more will he bow in reverence and holy awe before the presence of the eternal God. Could he be again as he was when he was pure, true, and loyal? Gladly would he yield up the claims of his authority. But he was lost beyond redemption. For his presumption, for his presumptuous rebellion. And this was not all. He had led others to rebel and to the same lost condition with himself. Angels who had never thought to question the will of heaven or refuse obedience to the law of God till he had put it in their minds, presenting before them that they might enjoy greater good, a higher and more glorious liberty. I want you to understand that argument is being used in society today. It's corrosive. And one of the most pervasive places you will see this idea that you can have greater liberty and freedom is in the perversity being taught in the woke media about human sexuality. You can have more liberty with the more partners you have of any gender. It's corrosive. It's purposeful against God's design, and it does not bring liberty, folks. It destroys. This is how the sophistry whereby he has deceived them. This had been the sophistry whereby he deceived them. The responsibility now rests upon him from which he would fain be released. These spirits had become turbulent and dis- with disappointed hopes. Instead of greater good, they were experiencing the sad results the sad results of disobedience and disregard of law. What kind of law reaps its own result? Have any of you actually ever, when you were driving, looked down at your speedometer and realized you were doing 38 and a 35? (laughs) Have you ever done that? Do you understand you're a lawbreaker if you've done that? And did you reap terrible sad results for that? No, there's no results to that. That's an imposed law, an arbitrary rule, made up. Only when we break design law do we reap from that sad results. 
Nevermore would these unhappy beings be swayed by the mild rule of Jesus. Nevermore would their spirits be stirred by deep, earnest love, peace, and joy, which he pre- which his presence had ever inspired in them to be returned to him in cheerful obedience and reverential honor. Satan trembled as he viewed his work. He was alone in meditation upon the past, the present, and his future plans. His mighty frame shook as with a tempest. An angel from heaven was passing. He called and entreated an interview with Christ. This was granted him. He then related to the Son of God that he repented of his rebellion and wished again the favor of God. He was willing to take the place God had previously assigned him and be under the wise, his wise command. Christ wept at Satan's woe, but told him as the mind of God that he could never be received into heaven. Heaven must not be placed in jeopardy. All heaven would be marred should he be received back for sin and rebellion originated with him and the seeds of rebellion were still within him. Had he, he had in his rebellion no occasion for his course, and he had not only hopelessly ruined himself, but the host of angels also who, had, who would have been happy in heaven had he remained steadfast. The law of God could condemn, but could not pardon. What's described here? Why was Satan not taken back? Was it because God was unwilling to forgive him? God had anger. Jesus was angry in his heart. He was mad. He was hostile. He needed somebody to propitiate wrath. Somebody had to do something to appease him. Is that what's described here? No, nothing like that. He wept. He wept because he loved him. What's described here is the seeds of rebellion remained within him. He was still selfish. He was still driven by pride. He was sorrowful for the results and the consequences of his action. He was not changed in principle or motive. He was still jealous. He still had envy. He still uh, was a liar. The same rebel in character. And you understand that his behavior here, and we'll get to it in a moment, Actually, no, we'll get to it in a moment. Uh, God's law can condemn but not pardon because it's diagnostic instrument. It's the protocols or standards for life. The law can't fix what's broken. Continuing on. He repented not of his rebellion because he saw the, he repented not of his rebellion because he saw the goodness of God which he had abused. It was not possible that his love for God had so increased since his fall that it would lead to cheerful submission and happy obedience to the law which he has despised. The wretchedness he, the wretchedness he realized in losing the sweet light of heaven and the sense of guilt which forced itself upon him and the disappointment he experienced himself in not finding his expectations realized were the cause of his grief. He was sorry for the result, not the actual sin itself. To be commander out of heaven was vastly different from being honored in heaven. The loss he had sustained of all the privileges of heaven seemed too much to be borne. He wished to regain these. The great change of position was not in, had not increased his love for God, nor for his wise and just law. When Satan became fully convinced that there was no possibility of his being reinstated in favor of God, 
he manifests his malice with increased hatred and fiery vehemence. That is diagnostic. Understand, Satan, when Satan realized he couldn't come back, his attitude and actions diagnosed that Christ was correct, that rebellion remained within him. Had Satan truly repented and Christ said this and Christ had, and Christ had been actually wrong in what he'd said, then Satan's response and attitude would have revealed that Christ was wrong. He would have said, you're right. I love you guys so much. If I'm at risk, I, I don't want to come back. I, I just want to protect you guys. Um, so I'm okay. I'm happy to stay out if that makes heaven better. And he would have taken no action to advance his rebellion or hurt God's cause. But in fact, he, he was not a changed person. He was a continued rebel, and his actions showed it. Satan went along to mature his plans that would most surely secure the fall of Adam and Eve. He had fears that his purpose might be defeated. And again, even if he should be successful in leading Adam and Eve to disobey the commandments of God and thus become transgressors of his law and no good come to himself, his own case would not be improved. His guilt would only be increased. What kind of guilt would be increased here? Is this like a legal guilt? He would just have more charges put on him in the, in the tribunal of heaven? Or is this a guilt of soul, a guilt of experience? He would actually be guilty of hurting other people, and he would have that placed upon his conscience, if you will. He shuddered at the thought of plunging the holy, happy pair into the misery and remorse he himself was enduring. Did you ever consider that? He shuddered at the thought of bringing us down. He seemed in a state of indecision, at one time firm and determined, then hesitating and wavering. His angels were seeking him, their leader, to acquaint him with their decision. They will unite with Satan and his plans, and with him bear the responsibility and share the consequences. Satan cast off his feelings of despair and weakness, and as their leader fortified himself to brave out the matter and do all in his power to defy the authority of God and his son. What is being described here? It's an important dynamic to recognize. It's a powerful one. It's reality. It's how it works. What's being described? Evil people reinforce evil behavior in each other and encourage them to do it. And silence any conviction or hesitancy to do evil when they come together. And you can read about this in Romans when Paul tells three times that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. He says, and after this, listen to what they said, they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree... That those who do such things deserve death, they do not only continue to do these things, but approve of those who practice them. Good job, folks. Well done. Do you see the praise coming in our society for the corruption and evil? And do you see the criticism? You stand up and try to speak of the virtues of God's kingdom in our society today. You are criticized. You are attacked. And they praise the evil as it continues to go. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love, 
so thankful for Jesus, so thankful for your kingdom, so thankful for your eternal laws that are, that are the principles and protocols of health and life and happiness. And we open our hearts to you, ask for your spirit to come, write your law on our hearts and minds, renew us in righteousness that we can be lights in this dark world at this time, that the message, the final message of mercy can advance in this world and you may come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.